Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Colin McEnroe. John Dankowski is, in fact, in L.A. shooting a small cameo on the new primetime Muppets series. Let's just say, you know, I mean, Kermit and Miss Piggy are not together. She gets lonely. You could probably put two and two together, can't you? But here in Connecticut, we are serious. We are so serious. We are not about the Muppets. Today we're going to be extremely serious about serious problems. We're only interested in serious listeners. So if you want laughs, I suggest you check out CTN's jam-packed Thursday night primetime comedy lineup, which includes Two Broke Senators, My So-Called Budget, Keeping Up with the Ayalas, and, of course, Chase Rogers' Supreme Court Deaf Comedy Jam. That's where the laughs are. We're going to be serious here right now because there's serious problems. Facing the state of Connecticut, I have two very serious guests in the studio. Tom Dudchick seriously edits uh, ctcapitalreport.com, which uh, political junkies wake up to every morning. Uh, and Mark Pazniokas is very seriously the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We're going to start out with the most serious um, topic of all, or at least the least fun. Uh, maybe that's a better way to put it. And that's the Connecticut State Budget. It turns out that Ben Barnes, who's the Budget Director, Budget Chief for Daniel Malloy, was being serious when he said our state is in permanent fiscal crisis. So earlier this month, Malloy ordered $103 million in emergency cuts and made a whole lot of people mad, including Democrats and Republicans and hospital administrators and lots of people. Some of them are calling for a special session and offering up ideas for how to fix the budget crisis we remain in. How did Malloy respond to those ideas coming there into his already, Go There ahead. are already always ways to look at uh, uh, getting to a goal that we need to get uh, to. Uh, and whether it's a Republican idea or a, Rep- uh, or a Democratic idea, uh, I'm happy to hear serious ideas from serious people who actually want to move uh, the state forward. All right. That's that word again. Serious. So, um, Paz, maybe you can sort of give us a give us a sense of I mean, what's happening here? It seems as though we just like rolling blackouts. We just sort of have rolling budget crises. Is, is this one any different? Was Malloy doing Michael Douglas's speech <laughs> from American president? Could be. Yeah. All right. Because I, I, I was at that press conference and I had that odd thought. Uh the rolling blackouts. Uh, this is a kind of nagging low-level cold that once again is threatening to erupt into <laughs> a case of pneumonia that might kill you. Um, some interesting things here. I mean, the, the you know you need Faniff to come on and explain the nuts and bolts of of what's what are the underpinnings about this fiscally. I mean, I, I can do the broad brush stuff, but to me, the politics are fascinating because. You are seeing this conflict between Malloy and the Democratic legislative leaders. The Democratic legis- legislators obviously are up for re-election next year. Governor Malloy is not up until 2018 and, and in fact nobody believes he will stand for re-election for a third term. So their political interests are diverging and there are tensions that are uh, apparent now that are only going to exacerbate I, I think in the next session – and then it will get even worse after that because the budget projections are the the cold that the state has developed this year, a $100 million hole in the current year budget 
Um, and that's what Malloy um, made the cuts to uh, attack. That explodes after the next election. Um, the projections from the nonpartisan Office of Fiscal Analysis are um, the way the economy is going, the way tax revenues are coming in. The state once again could have a billion-dollar hole in its $20 billion annual budget. Yeah. So, Tom uh, Dudchick, uh, one of your heroes, Everett Dirksen, used to say, you know, a million dollars here, a million dollars there. <laughs> Pretty, Pretty soon you're talking about some serious money. money. Well, we've just basically added zeros to that. I mean, you know, Paz is right in the sense that $100 million problems don't look that bad, but that's only because billion-dollar problems are sitting down in the pipeline. And so we've got the budget chief saying, using this term permanent state of fiscal crisis, but it seems as though the Republicans are pushing a little bit more, saying, look, you know, we can nickel and dime this thing, or we can actually look at the structure of the budget. But as Pat was saying, in an election year, how far can they get doing that? It's not going to go far at all. And and first, I also tip my hat to Keith Fanoff, who needs here to X and O and chalkboard this out. And and Keith, you know, and I I speak a lot, he's been banging the drum on this $1 billion number for years now. I mean, this is not something that they just kind of figured figured out was going to come down the pipeline. This is a known quantity. And the next governor is going to be sitting on an absolute horror show, a grease fire of of monumental tax increases, budget cuts, whatever. It's going to be a, a real a nightmare. The um, Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just as long as we're invoking persons not present, if Danny Hart were here, I think he might be saying, uh, Paz, that that you know, what's being proffered right now about the short term you know, $100 million, $200 million fiscal crisis, that it has something to do with a slowdown in the stock market. And and I'm not even sure I particularly buy that argument. I mean, one thing that Danny always says is, well, you tend to get those shortfalls when people are profit-taking, as a, which they're not doing right now. In other words, capital gains come in when you cash out. Who's doing that right now anyway? I'm not sure I buy the argument for why there aren't the revenues they're supposed to be. They, they're using the stock market as an indicator, not as the cause. Um, I mean, sometimes it is the cause, you know, when it comes to the flow of of tax revenue from people, you know, cashing in and and registering capital gains. But what Barnes said the other day is, I mean, he had this historical chart where when the S&P 500 is below a certain level, this is the shortfall that often results. And it's not a perfect match, but... Um, it was a you know it was a, a fairly convincing indicator. A- and again, if you want to break down all the causes for why the Connecticut economy is not producing enough tax revenue, that's a complicated subject because there are some positive signs. Unemployment is now uh, at a at a fairly low figure of five point four percent, I believe, in the last monthly figure. Uh, job growth is. Chugging along, not as fast as people would like, but we are within reach of recovering all the private sector jobs that were lost in the 2008 recession. But the state's uh, government apparently is not sustainable when you look at the tax revenue that's coming in. And the question is, who is going to tackle that in a significant way? And to do that, you know, whether you're going to go Scott Walker on state employee unions, which I don't see anybody in Connecticut in either party willing to do. But but I have not seen anybody step up and say, OK, these are some major structural changes we are going to consider to determine what is sustainable for government in Connecticut. 
and what that means is you have to have a realistic conversation about where can we go on taxes for new revenue and how tolerant will people be of cutting government. What Governor Malloy found out in, in the current budget is that people howl. People in both parties howled when uh, he did some significant cuts. I mean, you got to remember, the Republicans um, in their alternative budget, they really added back all the cuts Malloy wanted to make. The mm-hmm. difference is they were saying, we got to bring labor to the table and we got to get them to cough up hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. I, I want to come to that, the question about labor in just a second. But, you know, you said, who's going to take this seriously? Uh, who's going to do something serious about it? Past, I think you got the wrong Scott, all right? Uh, in fact, Malloy made his comments at the end of uh, a bonding commission uh, meeting where, in fact, $620,000 was appropriated to uh, fix up the Amistad boat. And here's what uh, Republican legislator Scott France had to say about that. As a state, should we be in the business of running tennis tournaments? Should we be in the business of, of supporting boat uh, projects? Um, they're wonderful, but, but boats tend to be a large hole in the water in which you throw a lot of a lot of money. All right, so that's, well, that's, that's the solution, Tom. Sell the boat. Well, and that well, you know, and that is the point that I was going to make. And you know, many, 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 many moons ago, when I was deputy commissioner of DEP, you know, we looked at these structural changes. And so, for instance, the state operates fish hatcheries. And so, the question becomes: Is should the state of Connecticut be in the business of raising and stocking fish? And Don't if, give them to DCF if you and do. And if the answer is yes, then we need to do that. And if the answer is no, then we need to use that money to do something else. Or should all the state parks remain open or should this be a, a, a select few? So a constriction of government. But again, as Mark says, once you start making those tough decisions, then nobody wants to hear that. Well, look, uh, you know, but Paz raised, uh, I think, I mean, you know, uh, whether or not it can be fairly said that nobody's really bringing serious solutions to the table. Well, Fasano and, and Claritas, the two minority leaders of the General Assembly, they, they are basically saying, let's go back, let's have a special session, and let's talk about compensation uh, and, and benefits. You know, that this is one of the drivers of state spending. Um, I think a, a case can be made that it is out of control, that it does need some kind of review, some kind of comprehensive review view, the pension padding with all the extra overtime and stuff like that. I mean, that really does wind up costing a lot more money than than boats and, and tennis tournaments. But, uh, Tom, the question would be, in an election year where Democratic legislators need labor support, would they be willing to go there? Yeah, that's obviously the obvious answer to that is, is certainly no. Famously, uh, from former AFL-CIO President John Olson's famous quote is that we don't have a tax problem this decade. We have a revenue problem. We just need to bring in more and more and more and more and more revenue. There's not a spending program problem. We're not going to cut enough spending to make what we need to do. So if you have that kind of attitude, it's going to be difficult to change things. Here's the, here's the problem in making significant changes in the cost of labor when it comes to state government. You really need the consent of the unions to do something immediately. Because if you have to play hardball and if you have to revert to layoffs, that pushes any savings off. It's really hard to instantly derive labor savings. Um, When it comes to the longer-term issues of pensions and retiree health, the state under Jody Rell and and under Dan Malloy actually have tried to bring some sanity to that system. You have to, re- you know, you have to be now in your 60s to retire. <laughs> um, shocked. Uh, 
they they have done you know there's a multi-tier pension system and the benefits that current state employees are getting are not crazy it's still a good pension system let's face it any defined benefit system in this day and age is considered a very good retirement system um so that's the challenge it's hard to instantly wring out money i mean what did malloy do uh in his first year the big savings he went for the pay freeze there were some raises that were on the books and he grabbed them because that was the biggest, easiest uh, pool of cash to go grab. And, and again, this is why whoever takes this on, if anyone takes it on, they're going to have to be in it for the long haul. And I think that when you, when, Colin, when you talk about the, about the Republican opposition, which mostly the Democrats, including Malloy, just kind of swat them away like like gnats. You know, an interesting story was told to me by by someone who uh, was told by, by Senator Fasano, who was talking to a, a high ranking member, a Democratic member of the Senate. And, and the Democrats said to him, well, it occurs to us that. Both houses of the legislature are Democratic. The governor is Democratic. All the commissioners are Democratic. Every member of the congressional delegation is Democrats. So obviously people in the state of Connecticut like what the Democrats are doing. So where's this great rush to have these special sessions to change things around? The good news is that there's a more um, uh, enlightened business community out there that is really trying to step up the pressure on the legislature to solve some of these problems that you speak of. Well, I think also one of these days some Democrats are going to start losing elections on this stuff. I mean, you know, it seems like a... Oh, we're there. Yeah. I mean, in, in the state house, it's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the, Repu- the Republicans went from 37 seats in 2008 to 64 last year. They are 12 short of a majority in the 151-seat house. So the Republicans are competitive in Connecticut, not so much in federal offices, but they are competitive in, in state and some of the de- and some of the Democrats who have been targeted by the business community are just shocked that they're getting mailed into their district and they're and they're they're not liking the pressure that they're getting calls from businessmen and businesswomen in their district saying why are you doing this and and I think what happens then for example you know there's obviously a big battle going on between Malloy and the hospitals uh, over proposed cuts uh, that would reduce both their state and federal um, income to these hospitals um, and Malloy has made it about CEO pay. Um, which I think, I mean, as, as somebody pointed out in one of the stories, I mean, if, if they all every, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't very highly compensated, maybe even overcompensated hospital chiefs, but I mean, if they all worked for free, it wouldn't substantially reduce what's I think a $200 million problem. Um, and meanwhile, <laughs> the Yukon Health Center, which is theoretically at least kind of quasi under Malloy's uh, control, there are four people making over a million dollars. And plus, once you make the decision to give Ray Dan- Galio, uh, head of Bridgewater, right? One of the richest, one of the richest men in the world, one of the largest hedge fund, extra money to to, to build stuff in Westport. It just, the, the entire argument goes out of the out of the window. Yeah, the the Yukon stuff. The CEO there, I think it's four hundred thousand. The people who are up at a million are, are doctors, and that's mm-hmm. a that's another conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, but, so what about the special session? In other words, I'm assuming that there's no appetite for a special session anywhere except uh, on the pallets of Len Fasano and Themis Claritus and the rest of the Republican minority. Is there any upside for anybody else going into special session? I know, I know another, one other yeah. person who wants a special yeah. session, Yeah, Dan Malloy. Dan Malloy wants a special session because he wants to protect the revenue that he grabbed in the last budget for transportation. The lockbox. The lockbox. And the Democratic legislative leaders 
are, are looking at this huge problem over the horizon and saying, like hell, the last thing we want to do is shrink the, you know, what is discretionary because they're trying to protect their initiative, which was uh, property tax relief. Um, the interesting thing is, in effect, they are making Malloy's case for why if you're ever going to do a long-term commitment to transportation <laughs> infrastructure, why you probably do need something like a constitutional lockbox because every time a budget crisis comes up, when it comes to you know rehabbing an old bridge versus uh, providing uh, property tax release on outrageous car taxes in you know Hartford and New Haven, well, guess where legislators are going to go? But but it, that's the interesting thing. Malloy would love to have a special session to speed up the process by which you can get um, a constitutional amendment. You know, you can do it. It's a two-year process. If you're doing certain votes, it's a one-year process. You can put it on the ballot next year if. You came in and got a supermajority um, in both houses. And I think politically, any time you give the Republicans the opportunity to have that bully pulpit as as in a special session, I think it's something the Democrats would would certainly want to avoid. Yeah, I, well, I mean, Malloy kind of has suggested he just really does want to hear everybody's ideas right now by suggesting he'll only listen to serious ones. Speaking of that, we seriously have to take a break. We're here with our friends from CTN today. Uh, they're recording this for a future broadcast. We'll be back after this. All right. Welcome back uh, to The Wheelhouse. This is Colin McEnroe sitting in for John Dankowski. If you think the previous segment was serious, when you see this uh, segment, because in fact, uh, in Bridgeport, things have gotten very complicated. And um, well, actually, they've been really complicated for a long time. They just get complicated in different ways and new ways. So in fact, uh, just to quickly recap here, um, the uh, former mayor of Bridgeport, uh, Joe Gannam, a man who served seven years in federal prison for his crimes while in office, now kind of has a putative lead. He won the primary uh, earlier this month. Uh, Bill Finch lost the ballot spot he thought he had for the general election. Can't seem to get it on any other ballot spot. So he finally kind of faced that music this week uh, and uh, decided that he would uh, support Mary Jane Foster, yet another candidate for office on the Democratic side. But uh, we, before that, Gannon was trying to figure out, is the Finch campaign in? Is the Finch campaign out? Is the Finch campaign in? Is the Finch campaign out? We actually have a little bit of tape of that, I believe. It's in! It's in! You cannot be serious! See, that's that serious thing again. Um, so, uh, Mark Pazniokas, I know you've been, uh, you've been boots on the ground there uh, in Bridgeport as Joe Gannam's uh, knocking on doors. We'll come to that in a second. But the, the big development right now is this coalition, this putative coalition in which Finch drops out, backs, backs Mary Jane Foster. My question would be, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting questions here, but Mary Jane Foster, I don't think she's ever gotten more than four or 5,000 votes in any of the times that she's run in primaries and general elections. She's going to need a lot more votes than that in order to beat Ganim. So how serious uh, a campaign can she mount? Uh, it will depend on whether this coalition can gel into an effective organization. You've got to do it in five weeks. Uh, you're right. She did not do particularly well when she challenged Bill Finch four years ago in a primary. She ran a distant third with 1,100 votes uh, in this primary behind Ganim and Finch. 
Um, so that is very much an open question. You know, she's a, a college uh, executive. She's a business person. Uh, is she going to be able to do what Joe Gannum does, which is go door to door all over Bridgeport? You know, Gannum is beloved, you know, in the in certain you know black districts. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I was there yesterday, and there's really nothing like being in a room full of people who hate each other <laughs> and are trying to be nice. They're and, trying to kiss. They're trying to kiss. They're trying to kiss. You know, it's like for the good of the kids. Come on, we got to hold this together. Um, I think it's it's a very hard thing in politics to organize a campaign around beating somebody. You know, these these people around Finch, these people around Foster. Have they agree passionately on one thing that having a former felon back in City Hall is horrible for a city that's starting to get some traction on development? It's starting to uh, bring in investors from outside, and the idea of the guy who oversaw a massive pay-to-play scheme would be back in charge, even if he is, you know, reformed. Uh, that's a scary thing. So the challenge, I think, for Foster is going to be to articulate a positive vision for what she's about as opposed to do a lot of what uh, Finch did, which is said, I'm not Joe Gannum. You know, yeah, I'm he, honest. And he, right, and, he, and, he, and he did say that incredibly forcefully, including the night that he did lose the primary. It was, a, it was an angry Bill Finch. And as your article pointed out yesterday, it was a kinder and gentler Bill, Bill Finch. And I think, Mary Jane, the biggest problem here is that there's not a lot of time left. And in to, to to put that contrast together, and I think she makes a clearer contrast between what Ganim was and what he may continue to do versus where Bridgeport is going in the future. Finch couldn't make that contrast because a lot of people don't like Bill Finch in Bridgeport. When you're in politics for for two terms, you get a lot of enemies and you make a lot of promises that that you don't keep and you anger a lot of people. His his play for the uh, for the educational system at that time, some of the working families parties, uh, not exactly. Fond of him, so I think Mary Jane Foster has an opportunity. She, as Pat says, she he, she got like twelve hundred votes. Finch got fifty eight hundred votes. If she gets two thirds of Finch votes and gets Republican votes and gets her, her own votes, unaffiliated, there, unaffiliated, there could there could certainly be a a a, a chance for her. But she's gonna have to run a near perfect campaign, and, and she's got to run against Rick Torres too. And Rick Torres is he's the Republican. He's gonna. He, he gets his votes from some of the same places that she and Finch both get their votes, right? Everybody's fighting over those Black Rock votes and those Central District votes, and then Ganim kind of you know rules everywhere else. But but the people who are really afraid of Ganim coming back, you know, you, you think there's going to be enough of a political sophistication to say, okay, as John Staffstrom, a former town chair and, and council leader, told me yesterday, he said. People are going to know. It's going to come down to Joe and Mary Jane, with with all due respect to Rick Torres, who got I think three thousand votes the last time. Right, he and, ran. I, and and I would have I would have given you know I would have I would have taken the odds that Ernie Newton would have gotten back in. But at the end of the day, when they when they went into the voting booth, they they looked at that and they go, uh, I just I just can't I just can't do that. And so I think there is that kind of it's buyer's it, remorse. So it, mean, there's, well, there's, a, there's, there's buyer's remorse, but there's a one. Th- it's a, it's a, it's a fancy kind of thought. Wow, Joe Gann. Wouldn't that be interesting to see him come back? And in many ways, I thought the same thing when I talked about the Lieberman uh, beating of Weicker. I think a lot of people didn't really think that Lieberman was going to actually beat Weicker, but they wanted to send a little message to him and <laughs> give him a little jab here and then. But then all of a sudden, it's like, well, what do you mean he's going to win? You know? And so I think that you'll see that in Bridgeport now. One of, 
one of the interesting scenarios that somebody suggested to me is that Gannon perhaps would have been better if he hadn't won the primary. That uh, the suggestion was he won the primary because people had kind of uh, become complacent and and he snuck up on Finch. Um, you know, Finch supposedly met his turnout number, but they were blown away by by the folks that Gannon brought out. But the but the problem with what Joe did is you can only surprise people once. So now the question is, will folks mobilize around Mary Jane? Will they come up as as Finch said yesterday? Will they will they you know pound the the payment, offer their shoe leather, and write checks? Because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people in the streets, and it's going to take money. And the right. best and the best quote in, in, in Mark's article yesterday that I that I highlighted on, on my website was when he when when Mark asked Malloy. What, what he was going to do. And, and Malloy carefully says, well, I really haven't been following it. And at some point, <laughs> at some point, at some point, I may. I don't watch start, that show. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, here it is. At some point, I may follow and it. He, and then DVR, he, goes, he DVR'd all those right. episodes. He's going to binge watch them. And then he goes, well, dot, 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 or, or I, I may not. Well, and, I'm, I'm reading that going, well, what do you mean you may not? <laughs> Bridgeport is the largest city in the state. If Joe Gannon's elected mayor, guess what, folks? Dan Moy's going to have to do business with him. The Democratic Party is going to have to right. do business. Jim with Himes him. is going to do business yeah. with him. Uh, you, you know, and that's going to be the interesting. You know, uh, if, if if Joe Gannon controls Bridgeport and controls the votes in Bridgeport, where does most of Jim Himes' votes come out of? This could be a perfect opportunity for a Republican to take back the fourth. <laughs> so I want to get past to tell a story, but to set it up, I just want to say I, I do think that Gannon's support isn't one thing. You know, it's a bunch of different things. I was talking to one. One of the smarter politicians in, in Connecticut, or former politicians in Connecticut, over the weekend, I, he will Bill remain, Curry. He, no, it wasn't him. He will remain nameless because we were both at a wedding and we were drinking wine. But he said, "Look, you know, Bridgeport has a self-image problem, and under Ganem, some of the people there kind of remember feeling good about Bridgeport in a in a very specific way, you know. And he was like a you know, featured in Time magazine as one of the great young mayors. So there's a little bit of the memory of that that we were better than maybe we could be better now. There's sort of that. Then there's people as as you've all both been saying, who are just mad at Finch for various kinds of reasons. Um, and then, you know, Paz, one of the things we know is that Ganem's going door to door where – and he's going into neighborhoods where the idea that maybe he was in prison for a while may not mean exactly the same thing to to the voters there that it maybe means to a bunch of people sitting in a radio studio in, uh, in, in Hartford. So uh, tell us what it was like. Who did, who did you run into going door to door with Joe Ganem? <laughs> well – well, Joe was on the east side uh, in a in a black, in a predominantly black neighborhood, uh, Wilmot Avenue, and he was he was really treated like a rock star. People wanted to do selfies with him, all that stuff. But he he ran into this woman who said, "I'd love to vote for you, but I can't because I've been to prison." <laughs> and Joe said, "Well, actually, I can help you with that. I happen to know. I think I know the law." And he explained the law, and he actually registered to vote on the spot. And as he said, "If I'm wrong." Um, they'll just reject uh, the voting card. And behind me, I heard this raspy voice saying, no, Joe, you're right. You're right. And I turned around and it was Ernie Newton, who also has reason to be familiar with these laws. And you cannot be serious. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the thing that was striking is uh, neither Joe Gannam or Ernie Newton displayed the least bit of, of self-consciousness at having a reporter be standing there recording this this back and forth about how you can go to prison, come back, and still uh, resume uh, participating in electoral politics 
in America. And Tom, one of the things Ganim does, he's kind of got his strut back a little bit, you know, and that's one of the ways that he runs. So we actually, you know, that one of the quotes was, and I think it was up on your side too, um, you know, I don't know why I should be worried about two losers joining forces <laughs> against yeah, me. Joe, he goes said, Trump. That to, yeah, Joe yeah. said that to me in a phone interview as I was driving to Bridgeport. I mean, he was, yeah, he was, you could like rubbing his hands together. <laughs> right, right. And, and he, he, he is, he has, uh, shows, he shows great retail skills, much like a lot of people who find themselves in trouble like like Governor Governor Rowland, and, you know. But when you look at that 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 economic miracle of the of the Gam administration, and, and Mark was Mark was around covering it. I was in government working for Lowell Weicker. A lot of that was was money that Weicker sent out to Bridgeport, whether it was whether it was taking Beardsley Park off the books, or whether it was moving the the the, the state police barracks into Bridgeport, or moving the community college mm-hmm. downtown, or cleaning up Lafayette Boulevard. A lot of that Renaissance was not the Gannam Renaissance, it was the Weicker Renaissance. So one one of my questions is, and I don't think anybody – one thing we know is that there are a lot more votes in Bridgeport than typically get cast. Turnout, particularly in municipal elections, it just tends tends to be low, even in hard-fought municipal elections like this one. So, But we know that in 2008, I think about 40,000 people voted in the Barack Obama election. 33,000 of them voted for Barack Obama, whereas I think uh, in in Finch's last general election against Mary Jane Foster, I think 12,000 people voted, about eight or 9,000 of them voted for Bill Finch. So you know the votes are there. If you could run around to people and somehow or other get that message out to them that if this guy, Joe Gannon, winds up as mayor again, we're going to have trouble getting money from the state, from the federal government, and from developers coming in here just being nervous about the overall climate. If you could sell that message to a lot of people, the, there, it's possible to churn out more votes than have been manifest or obvious in this election so far. But, you know, Mark, I just feel as though people – I don't know. I mean, they they got really excited about voting for Obama. Now, as you're saying, they have to get really excited about voting against somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, Mary Jane Foster, um, you know, she's articulate. She's got a pleasant personality and all. But, you know, she's not going to be pounding the pavement uh, on Wilmot Avenue the way Joe Gannon was. And Bridgeport uh, is a city where, uh, you know, Whites are a minority, so you've got to have that political skill of, of making common cause with blacks and Hispanics. I mean, you know, that's obviously the case in any major urban area. Um, Joe Gannam has done that. You know, Mary Jane um, has to do it. Now, she does have alliances with uh, the two state senators who are both minorities, Ed Gomes and uh, Marilyn Moore. And in fact, um, some of the grassroots folks like Tom Swan, who runs Connecticut uh, Citizen Action Group, uh, he's part of the Brain Trust. They're trying to put together a, a grassroots effort to get out the vote. Obviously, it didn't work in the primary. The question is, you know, can it, is it going to be super fueled now with the idea that it's Mary Jane or Joe? And I think what, what, what Ganim did is he did just that. It's, the campaign people who were running Bill Finch's campaign were t- telling me stories anecdotally. There are some of the people who were running Malloy's operations down there as well, that they registered people that they never thought could be registered, and they were crawling under bridge abutments <laughs> and bringing them. <laughs> no, in now, and, now, 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 yeah, now, Colin, no, don't no, be snide. You know, but it, no, they, they absolutely did, and they turned out the non-prime voters. You know, right. they turned out the people who show up in presidential years and they got them to show up in a mayoral primary um, and, and including people who did not turn out in the gubernatorial election, even though by all accounts, 
the Malloy people did a phenomenal job at identifying their support and turning it out. And, and I think Gannon did that probably to, to the nines. Yeah. I so, mean, when I, when I was walking with Joe, he pointed to a house and he was he was angry because there was nobody home. He said, there's seven votes in that house. I need to get inside that house. There are seven. <laughs> vo- I mean, you know, it's that level of detail. Granular, we like to say. Granular, right. yes. So, so very quickly, before we switch uh, over to the, um, the story of the clouds uh, in Hartford, um, which will be our final segment, Jeff Cohen, who's been covering the story, will be joining us. But very quickly, uh, Tom Judchik uh, on CT Capital Report, you've been closely monitoring the saga of Lawrence Kudlow, uh, a TV financial analyst who either may run against Chuck Schumer in New York or run against uh, Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut or not run against anybody. Uh, he's in. He's out. We, we've got the same debate going on all over again. So uh, where where does this rest right now? What's its current run, angle of Run, repose? Larry, run, right? Yeah. You know, oh, please, well, please, please. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's this, again, this Republican fascination with with, with rich guys from, you know, from, from Greenwich that want to run in Connecticut is I, I, I never understand. But, but the, the latest is he has not made up his mind yet. And according to Jack Fowler, who runs the National Review and a Milford resident who keeps close tabs on what, what Mr. Kudlow does, as does my friend Chris Healy, he says he's still up in the air. We'll see. Kudlow would be a great story. You know, he's a, he's a two-time convert. Uh, you know, he's a Jewish guy who converted Roman Catholicism. He's a former member of the Students for Democratic Society who converted to a Reagan supply cider. And this, you can throw in that he's a former uh, substance abuser who got ab- sober. Yes, absolutely. Another conversion. And so, uh, so he would be, if nothing else, would be fun to cover. Unlike L- Linda McMahon, you know, Kudlow is a communicator. He's mm-hmm. quick on his feet. This is a guy who would would try to brawl with uh, Blumenthal. Um, so, f- from the you know, speaking on behalf of political journalists in Connecticut who are looking at kind of a down year. Uh, I think it'd be fun. I, it would right. be fun. Yeah. And we have to be careful, too. I mean, certainly everything that we know from covering decades of Connecticut politics is that when you get in, uh, get a U.S. senator in there for a term or two, a Democratic U.S. senator, they're very hard to get out. But every once in a while, we're wrong. I mean, I would say Blumenthal looks impregnable. Uh, on the other hand, every once in a while, we're wrong. wrong. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, being listen, case in point. I certainly agree with you. Everyone is beatable at, at, at certain point. I think you can make a case against, against Blumenthal as you can make a case against against anybody. But it takes time. It takes money. And the question is, can you get in now and have, have enough time with 2016 on our doorstep? Yeah. And the, we also have to remember that the Republican brand when it comes to federal races is just god awful. If, if, you know, if I was running the, the Republican Party in state races, I would come up with a name change. I would, you know, I would do a spinoff, you know, like Accenture did with uh, the Anderson Consulting Group, because people... People do not like the Republican message. People in Connecticut do not like the Republican message nationally, and that's why you see this complete lock on congressional seats by the Democrats in Connecticut. And you contrast that with the state races where they came within a hair of winning the race for governor, and they are absolutely viable as far as competing for control of the General Assembly, or at least, you know, at least the State House. Also, Blumenthal is a great retail politician, right? I oh, mean, they just tireless. Yeah, he can be a U.S. senator forever. And he's still going to be eating some plate of beans at some, you know, horrible fair. We, you know, we mock him, um, <laughs> rightly, rightly so at times. But um, you cannot uh, argue 
with the success. I mean, consistently in the polls, he is the guy everybody recognizes and people like. So we can make fun of him for showing up as and actually Dick is now in on the joke. I mean, he jokes that, you know, he's a guy who would show up at a garage door opening. Right. I haven't I haven't told this story in a while, so I'll, I'll quickly tell it again. This is why I actually think he is impregnable. Uh, one year when he was attorney general, you may recall, it was 2000, I think, Santa Mendoza, uh, who was, you know, a Latino candidate. I mean, maybe not Latino the way some people are Latino, but she had a great name for it anyway, was the Republican nominee. And she was poll standing in New Haven on Election Day. And these people came up to her and they, they were Puerto Rican people. And they said, are you Santa, Santa Mendoza? She said, yes. And she, they said, well, we, I, we just want to say thank you for running. We're so proud. We don't have a lot of Latino candidates, and you've really made us proud. A Latino woman running for attorney general. And she said, well, thank you, and thank you for your vote. And they said, oh, we're voting for Blumenthal. <laughs> but, uh, so, below, <laughs> the, below the Mendoza line. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's sort of what the problem is. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a Hartford story after this. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. Welcome back to The Wheelhouse. I'm going to thank a few people because otherwise I'll forget to at the end. Our producers are Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. And our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tularski. And our interns are Zach LaSala and Nate Gagnon and Stephanie Reef. In fact, if you have any problems with today's show, any issues with today's show, please send it to Stephanie Reef. That's R E. R-I-E-F-E. Um, and any complaints, you know, things that made you angry or something, just uh, email Stephanie. Um, all right. So we're back. Uh, Tom Dutchick from CD Capital Report and Mark Pasniokas from the Connecticut Mirror are here with us. And now into the fray is Jeff Cohn, reporter for uh, WNPR. You've been covering a story that involves the many tentacled Cloud family. Uh, Sandy Cloud, of course, a, law, a former state politician uh, and uh, icon in the business uh, community of Hartford, uh, Adam Cloud. Cloud is the city treasurer of Hartford. Chris Cloud uh, is a lobbyist. As Joni Mitchell once said, so many things I would have done, but clouds got in my way. Uh, so um, Adam Cloud's kind of the centerpiece of this story, right? He's the city treasurer. Uh, and we know that this, the Cloud family has had private dealings uh, with a company called the Back Nine Network, a, a golf lifestyle network. That's right. Uh, obviously a winning co- concept, a golf lifestyle network. How could you lose with that? So so w- one of the things that you've been reporting on this week is sort of a conflation of Adam Cloud's duties as the city treasurer and his loyalty to his family when they have private dealings with the Back Nine Network. So That's what right. happened? So, the, so the, for, if you don't know, the Back Nine Network is a now off-the-air golf network. It raised reportedly about $40 million privately or total. $5 million came from the state of Connecticut uh, they've since sort of blown up spectacularly and now are not doing a whole lot golf-related at all. They've got two employees left. Uh, and the, but, but initially, back in 11, they were kind of a big deal. They were throwing some fairly big parties in 2012, and, and th- that was when they started uh, gaining some momentum. Uh, in the summer of—so let me back up. So in, in, the, in the December of 2011, Adam Cloud, who is the city treasurer, writes an email— to a private equity investor, uh, a guy by the name of Robert Smith of Vista Equity Partners. Uh, this is following up on a meeting that the two men had had together. And it, he says, hey, thanks for your great work. You executed your strategy flawlessly. It was great to talk with you. 
the whole first half of the email was all city business. I'm the city treasurer. You're going to maybe invest city pension funds. That was the implication there, right? And, and just to be clear, that means we, the city, are going to give you money to invest. We're going to give you uh, what I understand later to have been about $20 million of pension funds of city retirees to invest to this private equity investor. Nothing out of the ordinary about that. Mm. The second half of the email, though, was entirely about non-city-related business. In fact, it was about the Back9 network. And and Cloud sa- essentially says, while I have you, let me tell you about this awesome guy- golf lifestyle network. Uh, and I'll quote from his email now. He says to, to this private equity investor using his city email, the margins are in the 60% range, well short of vistas, but compelling nonetheless. I share it with you only because I get the sense that you are a man that likes to be on the ground floor of great ideas. So the question is whether or not that email mixing his public duties uh, with a private business interest should raise a red flag. Obviously, that's why we write about these things, right? Uh, Another flag that it raises, however, is that Back9 is not just any private company, but it's one that the Cloud family is especially familiar with. Uh, before this email was sent out, uh, Adam's brother, Chris Cloud, was already uh, a, sta- a paid state lobbyist for the Back9 network. At around the same time, the Back9 network moved into office space owned by uh, Cloud's father, Sandy Cloud. This is a familiar narrative. Uh, we can talk about that later also. We, we've seen this before with another business that's wound itself into some trouble. So th- that's the question. So uh, we spoke with Common Cause, Karen Hobart Flynn, about her perspective. We sent her the email and asked her what she thought, and, and here's what she had to say. Common Cause believes that um, if a city contractor is encouraged to invest in a business where the city treasurer's brother and father could potential, potentially benefit financially, we think that's a conflict of interest. And that kind of activity should be prohibited. Now, that kind of activity is prohibited in the state ethics code for state officials, which says that no public official or state employee shall use his public position or office uh, to benefit his family. Uh, meaning spouse, parents. The problem is, not the problem, the the difference here is that the city's ethics code doesn't prohibit that kind of activity. It only prohibits that activity if a specific matter is in front of you in your official capacity. That's not what happened here. She says that's a loophole and it should be fixed. So, Mark Pastinokas, we're talking about one of these things that's kind of fascinating but also really hard to report. You know, it's that sort of that gray area of particularly the clouds are kind of this horizontally integrated uh, you know, business that kind of combines the private sector and the public sector. But they're the kinds of people who, if you want to do business with the city of Hartford or maybe the state of Connecticut, it's good to get to know the clouds. And, 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 but it's really hard to kind of report on, on what goes on in that area where those two roles overlap. So I don't know. What's your take on this? couple of thoughts. One, Adam Cloud, it should be noted, is I believe the only incumbent who will be returning to City Hall after the next election. If he so, returns. So he does have staying power. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also wish to note that Jeff uh, served up fish in a barrel of Karen Hobart Flynn, and <laughs> she was able to shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also think that, that Jeff is doing uh, great reporting on an incredibly underreported story. And I think once the story... The onion is peeled back in the fact that that 
all the equipment that were that was that the back nine owned has been long gone and repossessed. So when these people start to begin to say we're still looking for investors to buy, there's nothing to buy. It, it is totally gone. So the state's money is gone. Everything's gone, and and you know that money never comes back. So I think this has many 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 more stories to go. See, to me, a big part of this story is that you know, as I said, if you want to do business with the state of Connecticut or the city of Hartford, there's certain people it's good to know, and there are people who can kind of walk you past the centuries, so to speak. And yeah, do you, would you want to jump in there? Well, yes, but it's worth noting uh, in in. Treasure Cloud's defense, a couple things. One, the city did invest pension funds in this yes. firm, but the firm never invested in back nine. Right. Uh, and and the, the email, while implicit, doesn't outright say, uh, you know, if you want us to invest your pension funds, our pension funds with you, you must invest. It doesn't, you must invest in back, back nine. It doesn't say that. And in fact, to be clear, that company never did inf- well, invest in the golf. Network. Well, let's just say it. I mean, I don't care what the, the city of Hartford's ethics policy is. Nobody in their right mind can look at that email and say, this was really a good idea to mix these two things. Um, I mean, the story, the story is multilayered. It does say something about some basic elements of politics, about relationships. I mean, I'll throw out there that, you know, because I'm old enough to remember such things, that Sandy Cloud was Chris Dodd's uh, landlord, <laughs> you know, for his <laughs> Senate office. Um, and then – and and – Senator Blumenthal's landlord yes. for a time. And, um, you know, Sandy Cloud uh, goes back to Washington. They was friends with, with Chris Dodd. And I think Adam may have been an intern there. You know, so, I mean, you know, it's all about relationships. And when Back Nine launched, you know, Brian Bosworth, who was this kind of swashbuckling figure who – you know, had a, you know, his wife for a while was... James Bosworth, by the way. I'm sorry, James Bosworth. Yeah. Did I say Brian? Yes. Oh, the linebacker. Ooh. That would be a good... That would be a good... That's an angle nobody's yeah. coming to. Now you're dating yourself. Yeah. Yes, I am. But anyway, um, you know, Bosworth, you know, he had, uh, you know, the, the TV reporter wife who did all these cheesecake kind of stories for Back Nine. So you had this element of sex... You had actors, Clint Eastwood. It, yeah. was, it was a very, you know, great place to be. You know, they, had, uh, they, had, they hired they hired um, the husband of the chief of staff of the governor at right. one point. You know, so it had all this stuff. Um, I don't know if it's ever been reported who initially told Bosworth or did, how did Bosworth figure out that I really want the clouds as my landlord. I want them as my lobbyist. And I, I want them as a potential investor. Bosworth has said in a court filing that uh, when when Sandy Cloud came onto the board, that Sandy Cloud encouraged him to both hire his son as a lobbyist and move into his uh, tenancy. However, that but said, how do you get Sandy? I mean, I mean, I don't know. How do you wake up one day and say this is the the, the road to getting? Uh, financing to, to getting success. In well, I mean, I, I, this goes back to my original point. There are people, I mean, you know who you should deal with. You you can ask, make one phone call coming into Connecticut and know that maybe you want to hire somebody like Tommy Ritter. Maybe you want to get to know the DiBella family. Maybe you want to get to know the Cloud family. There are sort of people around here who have that, you know, interesting kind of public-private combination. The problem, one of the problems the Clouds are having right now is that some of the people they have walked past the centuries have not been good people. So we had Earl, Earl 
Nogueira, who was also heavily connected to the clouds, vouched for essentially by Adam Cloud, who really, you know, I mean, he just ate up a whole bunch of Hartford insurance money. And now you've got the Back Nine Network. They also hired one of the clouds in order to, uh, you know, in order to help get state funding and, and, you know, has Adam Cloud plumping for them on emails to private investors. And they ate up a lot of state money. At a certain point, you think, wow, you're walking the wrong kind of people past the centuries. Well, that I mean, the, the question gets to um, how you you lay it out well. Hybrid insurance is an insurance company that is now no longer an insurance company because its CEO is under federal indictment and it's going to trial in December. Um, he has been called a sociopath by John Droney, Adam Cloud's attorney, and Adam Cloud in that situation is, an, is a victim, according to John. But uh, leaving that aside, this, the fact pattern is the same. Hybrid hired Sandy Cloud's son, Chris Cloud, to be his lobbyist. Hybrid rented office space at 30 Lewis Street, just as Back Nine did. And both of these organizations, both Hybrid and Back Nine, have flamed out. Uh, and so to your point, that is the question. Um, to what end judgment? Uh, and, and that's sort of where we are now. And one thing that I would say is, although it is true that the, there's, the municipal ethics code is different from the state ethics code, I mean, Paz, honestly, how many of these, how many similar things would be resolved by somebody seeking an opinion from the state ethics commission and finding out that it's okay to do it first? I'm always amazed at the things that the state ethics commission tells state elected officials and state employees that they actually can do. Yeah, I mean, you know, John Lender, the current, had a story about how about the treasurer's office. You, you know, you can't solicit campaign contributions from people you do business with, but you can solicit. Charitable contributions, and you know that's what they did recently. And John Lender, you know, laid that out in a story, and that was blessed by the ethics uh, office of state ethics. I mean, almost no state legislator has ever recused him or herself from anything, as far as I can tell. No matter what kind of business connection or personal Banking, connection, legal, real estate, or spouse connection, or what I mean, it just sort of never happens. Well, we're going to have to wrap things up here. You hear the music telling us that. Thanks so much to Tom Dutchick. Check out ctcapitalreport.com. That's where everything is. Mark Pasniokas is Capital Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. He's a big part of that everything. And Jeff Cohn means everything everything to us here in the WNPR newsroom. Thank you all for being so serious. Have a very serious day.